We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Now we're going to invite Mr. Nelson to come and read in the Scriptures. We're going to be in Romans chapter 11, please. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But... What does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of work. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if, if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of the unbelief they are broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, 
And if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And for this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet how now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown, shown you, I'm sorry, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Who Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Please uh, open in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this evening. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If uh, you're visiting this evening, like my in-laws are doing, or maybe you're joining for the first time online, we've been working our way through 1 Timothy. And um, I was reminding my, or I was telling my father-in-law earlier, the reason I chose this is more or less because, uh, if you remember, one of my last messages in the personal evangelism series was on 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first few verses on um, praying for all men, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives and all godliness and reverence. And after that, I was thinking, you know, where do I go next? And so I just kind of backed up two chapters. And that's really the only reason. Uh, I wish I had a better reason than that, except that we should be uh, learning all of God's word, of course, and trying to seek to understand it better and apply it to our lives. And so that's why we're here this evening, to do that. And so I hope, hope that's given you enough time to find First Timothy 3. And uh, we, we looked at the first um, 13 qualifications last week uh, for church leadership, for pastors, for the elders of the church. And uh, we'll kind of review those uh, in just a moment here this evening and then look at the last few remaining that we didn't get to last time and try to bring some kind of uh, conclusion to this section, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 7. And uh, let me read those for you, and then uh, we'll make mention of, again, those that we talked about last week just briefly, and then uh, we'll look at the last few at the end of those verses, verses uh, 4 to 7. But beginning in verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy these words, saying, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop... 
or we would say, you could say an elder or pastor, he deserves a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Let me offer up just a word of prayer before we look into God's word this evening. Our only Father, we pray now as we look into your word, may your spirit guide us, instruct us, teach us, admonish us, Lord, and uh, may we come away, Lord, being encouraged and edified and, ex- and exhorted in your word, um, Lord, understanding that these, the majority of these, if not most of them, apply broadly to all Christians, Lord, not, to just, not just to those who are in church leadership. And so help us, Lord, help us to submit ourselves to your word, to root out any sin, any, uh, any area in which we maybe fall short in this list, and uh, help us, Lord, we pray. Give us strength in Christ's name. Amen. I mentioned last week that in trying to kind of understand broadly how this fits into the book, I said that uh, the office of an overseer or a pastor is reserved for men who demonstrate certain qualities, the qualities we're looking at here in these verses, in order to guard the church, guard the church from false teaching, the primary issue here that we see in, church, in the church of Ephesus to, to where Timothy is at when uh, Paul's writing to him, guard, guard it from false teaching, guard it from, uh, from being slandered by those outside of the church who perhaps are looking in and you know, seeing, you know, look how they behave themselves and conduct themselves, and they call themselves Christians, you know, but they do you know, X, Y, or Z. And so this office is, is reserved, it's guarded, uh, for men who, who demonstrate these qualities in order to guard the church. Why? Because look what 1 Timothy um, chapter 3, beginning uh, in verse 14 says. It says, These things I write to you, and uh, you know, I take that to go all the way back really almost to the beginning of, of the letter where he's talked in general about how people are to conduct themselves, uh, conduct themselves and, as believers. And so he says, I write these things to you, Though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. And then he explains what this, this house of God is, how it, uh, how it functions. He says, which is the church of the living God. It's God's church. It's God's people uh, on a universal sense as we speak about the, you know, God's church. But, and then you know, specifically local churches as well. And he says, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the church functions as the protector of the truth. They are the ones that are to guard it and to proclaim it and to keep it from being, uh, from being thwarted and being changed, being, uh, being used for, for uh, you know, mis- misused for personal gain. And so um, 
Paul is instructing Timothy and then therefore the church to conduct themselves in the church in a proper manner because they are to be guardians of, of this truth. The church is the guardian of, of the truth. And if we, if we uh, are looking like fools to the world around us by our conduct, and we are, when we are not uh, submitting to the word of God as our instructor, then we are not protecting the truth as we, are, as we ought to. And, and this begins uh, with the example of, of the leader of the church, the church leadership. And so this is why Paul is then laying out all of these qualifications, because if they're going to lead the church and, be, uh, and, and help the church be guardians of the truth, then they themselves must have a, a blameless testimony in and outside of the church. So uh, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, Paul then is continuing his focus on proper church conduct by giving attention to the church leadership, the elders or pastors of the church. And these instructions reveal that the office of overseer is, as we said, reserved for certain men who meet these qualifications. And there are 16 of them uh, that Paul gives, all, all which must be met by a pastor, uh, whether a prospective pastor, one that aspires to the office, or one that's already in, off, in the office of pastor, he too, you know, just because he got in the door doesn't mean he no longer has to meet these qualifications. He needs to maintain a, a blameless and irre, uh, irreproachable lifestyle, and so he, he must also meet these qualities, uh, qualifications as well. Let me just make note again of uh, verses um, verse 1, where he says this, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. He desires a good work, a good thing, a, 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 an honorable, a noble task. This isn't simply just, you know, he desires to do a good work, you know, like women are, were instructed to be going about doing good works. This is a, a noble task, a job, an office, a, a position, and Paul says this is a noble kind of thing that he desires uh, to, to aspire to and to, and to, and to have, and, and not in a, in a negative kind of way, like he desires it out of selfish gain, but out of a, a true motivation to be used by God and to be an under-shepherd of, of a church. We also noted that the idea of desiring or aspiring to this office is what we may call a pre-qualification to, to the job, so to speak. Uh, any man who doesn't have a desire doesn't seem like it would be right to put him in that position. You know, like we said, you know, he's kind of like he looked everywhere else and he couldn't find any other jobs, so he said, well, I guess I'll be, you know, a pastor. That's not what we're looking for. That's not what a church should be looking for. Rather, someone who has a desire, a genuine desire, and is making strides in that direction through his conduct and through his preparation for the ministry, you know, whether that be further training uh, at a, you know, a formal schooling, whether it be formal schooling or just discipleship in the church, and, and, the, and the church is recognizing this desire, and, uh, and they can come alongside and say, yes, you know, we see you have the desire matched with also these, these qualifications, not one or the other, but both. Just because he desires it doesn't mean he's necessarily qualified. He needs to, to look in, uh, and evaluate himself as to whether he meets these qualifications. And one, one other thing I said last week is that 
um, you know, he should evaluate himself to see whether or not he's, uh, he's, he's conducting himself as Paul instructs him to, but it's also the, the responsibility of the church to evaluate him. It's not just his own self-evaluation that counts, but really it's the church looking at him and saying, yes, we see these kind of characteristics in his life, maybe not perfectly, but there's evidence of them, all of them, in his life, and he's, we see that he's making strides in, this, in the direction of spiritual maturity, and we can, and we can affirm that these things are, are true and, and evident in his life. Paul then begins uh, in verse 2 by listing off these qualifications uh, and beginning with the qualification of being blameless or irreproachable in regard to his, his character. And that's, we said last week, that doesn't mean that um, he may not be criticized. More than likely he will and probably often be criticized for, you know, his, for how he did something, you know, a decision he made, or maybe even his, his character. You know, they think that he had wrong motives or whatever the case may be. But the, the idea is not that he is not criticized, but when he is criticized or accused of something, um, after a thorough examination of, of his character and his conduct, it, those accusations fall short of truly being substantial. And... Um, such accusations, um, I, I noted, I don't think I noted this last week, but such accusations against an elder or a pastor are a very serious thing. doesn't mean they can't take place, but 1 Timothy 5.19 tells us this. Let me just read this to you real quick. It says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. And so I take that to mean that there's a a seriousness to accusing an elder or a pastor of, of some you know, misconduct or, or whatever the case may be. And again, that's not to say that they, they shouldn't do that if they, if they clearly and feel you know, by two or three witnesses that he's, he's at fault, then they can do that, but, it's, but there's a seriousness about making such accusations. We also looked at another qualification, the second one that Paul gives, which is that uh, pastors, elders, are to be husbands of one wife or a one-woman man. And we've noted that this means he absolutely cannot practice polygamy, but also it's more than that. That's not where it stops. It also means that he is to be faithful to his wife. He is not to be an adulteress or a fornicator. He is to be faithful to her and to love her and lead her and guide her and to, uh, to the end, you know, whether it means when she passes or, or he passes. We said that this doesn't prohibit, uh, you know, men who have, whose wives have passed from being pastors. It's not a necessity that he's married, but if he is, he is to be faithful to his spouse, faithful to her death. Um, and if she, are, if she were to pass, he is free to remarry, According to Hebrews 13.4, this isn't a prohibition against remarriage of, for those whose spouse has passed on, um, but they are to be faithful to their living spouse. Um, the next qualification that Paul gives is that he is to be temperate. This word means restrained in conduct, self-controlled, and level-headed. And uh, we see a similar characteristic, or the same one, required of deacons' wives in chapter 3, verse 11. 
uh, says there, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. The pastor then is to demonstrate self-control in all areas of life, not just those pertaining to his ministry or to his role as a pastor. The fourth qualification is that he is to be sober-minded. He is to be in control of himself, to be prudent, thoughtful, making careful consideration so that when he acts, he's acting in a responsible manner. Moving along, he is to be of good behavior. That is, he is to be respectable and honorable. I asked you know, this kind of rhetorical question, how will a church listen to what the pastor has to say from the pulpit if his character is not respectable, if you know outside of the pulpit he's you know just you know going on and on and behaving in, you know in all sorts of ways that are contrary to what Scripture teaches, and then he comes up and says, "But this is how you are to behave yourself." Well, we recognize the hypocrisy of that, and so Paul uh, requires and commands that pastors be of a good behavior. Uh, the sixth qualification is that he is to be hospitable. And literally, he is to be a lover of strangers. That is, he is to be welcoming people that are, you know, into his home that perhaps, um, you know, he may not even really know. But, uh, but in, a, in a desire to meet their needs physically, but also spiritually, he welcomes them into, into uh, their home. Uh, a book that I, I would recommend on this very topic of hospitality is uh, The Gospel uh, with a house key. Is that, is that correct, the name of the title? Um, and it talks about uh, just the wonderful ways in which you can show hospitality to the unsaved. So I, I commend that to you to read at some point. The seventh qualification is this, that he is able to teach. And this is the one qualification we said doesn't really apply to all people, to all the members of the church. We don't expect that all people have this gift of being able to teach, but the pastor much must because much of his responsibility in the church revolves around teaching the teaching and preaching of God's word. He has to have uh, a giftedness, a skillfulness in teaching. It may not mean that he is perfect. You know, he may be coming along, and uh, you know, I appreciate the, the the kindness and grace that you show me in this area as I continue to learn and and try to um, better communicate the word of God. And so uh, we recognize that, you know, we all have our flaws, but he still needs to, at some base level, demonstrate an ability to, to explain and to apply through, you know, argumentation and persuasion the word of God. The eighth qualification is that he is not to be given to wine. He cannot be a drunkard and, uh, you know, addicted to alcohol or any kind of uh, substance which controls his body. Uh, as we said you know, before last time, uh, he needs to have a clear mind. He needs to be able at any moment to counsel, to exhort, to rebuke, to encourage, and so he can't be clouded in judgment by, uh, by some kind of alcohol or other controlling substance. It's not a good testimony to the church or else those outside of the church, and, uh, and so he needs to in my mind, I, you know, he needs to take a view of you know, just abstinence from it. Don't even dabble with it. Let it go. I think that's also a good principle for all Christians as well. I'll let you think through that. Uh, the ninth uh, qualification is that he is not to be violent. He is, 
not to be a bully, is not to be violent with physically, but also verbally as well. He is to be gentle in, uh, in his words and in his, in his character. The idea we said here is closely tied to not being quarrelsome. He's not to be about creating quarrels and something which the false teachers, by their teaching, was, were allowing to happen, allowing disputes to take place. And, you know, we can assume that maybe even they were instigating those or taking part in them, and that is not how a pastor is to conduct himself. The tenth qualification is that he is not to be greedy for money. Pastors are not uh, to be looking for the best salary, you know, jumping from church to church, you know, where can I find some kind of, you know, the best salary. They're not to have that focus because it shows a wrong kind of priority, priority on, on earthly matters and not eternal matters. They're not to take advantage of the generosity of the church. Rather, they are to be good stewards of what God has given and give themselves and their focus to the ministry, not, not financial gain. Greed for money, we said, demonstrates a lack of priority and self-focus rather than a priority upon God and, and the flock which he is to care for. Um, pastors also be to be gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, um, similar to the idea of not being greedy for money, not having a love of money, like uh, Hebrews 13.5 warns against. And then we come to this evening, uh, the last of the qualifications, the last three, beginning in verse 4. Paul says this, he is to be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. The word here, rule, means to exercise a, exercise a position of leadership, uh, of, of rulership, directing to be the head of something. In this case, he is to be the head of what? His own house. So it carries here the idea of leading and directing and presiding over his household. The same uh, word appears in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, um, where it talks about uh, ruling over you uh, and, and presiding over. In 1 Timothy 5.17, um, it says this. We're close by, so I'll read that. 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well... Be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And so the, the pastor, the elder, has a, has a, uh, a position of leadership and rule and uh, directing the church, but also this begins at the very foundational level of his, of his family. And we'll see that, uh, you know, Paul kind of uses an argument from lesser to greater in one sense when it comes to this. A pastor must be able to manage his, his home well in all aspects, and some translations actually use this word of managing, although I think it goes beyond just kind of the managerial kind of thought we have when it comes to maybe uh, you know, a, a person in, in, in a business managing others. Uh, in one sense, that's true, but it, it goes beyond that. It goes to leading and counseling and directing and disciplining. He is to be the leader of the home. The word uh, here, house, uh, does not refer to you know his literal the little you know two by fours that make up the building of his home, rather it refers to the persons within the home, the household, and um, the family that that lives 
in the home. Of course, you know, I think we could make the argument that he needs to be able to take care of his home as well. You know, the finances, the maintenance, and all of that showing good stewardship and ability to make decisions in that regard. But really, Paul's focus is not necessarily that, but the people in his own household, how he rules and leads them is what really matters. Paul's main concern is uh, is the pastor's leadership over the people of the household, and even more specifically here, I think the children of the home. Uh, there's, there's other passages we can talk about, like Ephesians 5, that talk about you know, a wife submitting to her husband and to, for him to, um, you know, to love her, and so there's, there's instruction about that kind of relationship. But I think the specific focus here is his children uh, in, in this house. Notice, too, that uh, Paul says he is to, to lead or to rule his own house. How? Well. He is to do it well. A pastor must be one uh, whose leadership in the home is not only intrinsically good, but also visibly good. It needs to be uh, obvious. It needs to be evident to others that he is leading his home well. In other words, those outside of the home should be able to observe that his children follow and submit and uh, subordinate themselves under his leadership. The evidence of good leadership in the home is his children's submission to his authority. And that is what Paul means by when he says having his children in submission. He's, he's, He's kind of expounding upon what it means to rule the house well. It means having his children in submission with all reverence. They are to be subordinate to him, not out of control, not rebellious. That's what it means to be submissive, not to be you know, wildly out of control and, and uh, you know, completely insubmissive to, to the father, to the leader of the home. The children are not to lead the home and you know, call the shots, as we might say. That is the role of the father. And it's, you know, sadly quite evident when a family is out and about, when you can, you can quickly notice who rules, you know, whether it's the dad, whether it's the mom, or even whether it's the children by, you know, how they speak to them and how they, you know, let them get away with something or, you know, don't correct them. And so that is not to be the example that the pastor's home is to be setting, Rather, they are to be submissive to their father. And, uh, you know, on a personal note, I can say that that, in a sense, puts a lot of pressure on the children of the home. I mean, I, I was raised in a pastor's home, and I can, I can say firsthand there's an expectation of how, how you will act. And, and if I can speak to uh, that side of it, the, the child's side of it, um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to, to play the part and to be submissive because, well, that's what's expected or I'm expected to conduct myself in a certain way. And, you know, people, you know, just think that's, you know, how, it's, how it is. And so uh, I encourage, if you're in that situation, to really consider what it means to be submissive um, in, from, an internal, from an internal to the, to the external and really have a genuine desire to follow the leadership of, of your father and not just do it because it's what the expectation is. 
An indication of a person's uh, ability to lead is the general posture of his children. Does he have them in submission, or are they rebellious and troublesome? If they are not submissive but out of control, Paul then is prohibiting them from managing and caring for the household of God. It doesn't mean perfect submission. Again, just to what I was speaking about before, it doesn't mean they're perfect. doesn't mean uh, they may not have their problems. We all do. We're all sinners. Um, and so, but the general idea is that on a general or a basic level, they are submissive to their father. Now, you know, one may ask, you know, well, you know, what does that mean, you know, when the kid gets older, the child grows up, he leaves the home, and then all of a sudden, you know, he just, he's, he just goes, you know, he goes wild. He, he's rebellious. He goes the way of the world. Does that disqualify, you know, the pastor then from, from uh, holding the office because, you know, his child's no longer submitting to him or he's, you know, he's out of control? And my answer to that is no. At that point, he's really no longer under uh, his father's household. He's gone out. He's making his own decisions as good or as bad as they are. And so he's, he's not disqualified from it. And, uh, um, you know, rather we should just pray. Ask the Lord that that person uh, would uh, heed the instruction that he received or she received when they were in, the house, in, their, in their father's house. But it doesn't disqualify him from, from the ministry. Uh, once he's once he's gone out of the home, um, the similar requirement of elders in Titus one six refines what Paul means by submissive. And in that text, it says, uh, "Let me just read it for you." Titus chapter one verse six. We're close by there. Uh, beginning in verse 5, it says, and this is uh, Titus 1, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. And so those two words help us understand you know, what it means to be submissive. Uh, not encourageable or insubordinate, but rather submitting to the Father. Now, you'll notice, um, just since we're there in the text in Titus 1, the parallel command there uses the term faithful, uh, which I take to mean obedient and submissive to their Father's orders or instructions, guidance, leadership. Um, but some have taken this to mean that their children must be faithful in the sense of believing children or, or saved individuals because, and you know, to defend their view, uh, the word here, pistos, meaning faithful or uh, believing, uh, is used, you know, that word often has that idea of a salvific sense of being saved. Um, however, I find this less convincing in relationship to the parallel passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which doesn't use this idea or this term believing or faithful, but rather, you know, submissive to their father. 
Um, and so it's less likely in view of the context here of 1 Timothy 3, 4, not to mention the fact that we have no control over the salvation of our children in the sense that, you know, we, we, as much as we pray for them, as much as we teach them and, and share the gospel with them and instill in them the very words of God, it doesn't, doesn't, uh, it doesn't confirm or guarantee, I should say, the fact that they'll be saved. We pray that. We hope that. They definitely ha- are in the, the proper atmosphere, the right setting for all of that to happen, but it's, it's the work of the Spirit. It's not the work of, of man to bring about that salvation. And so uh, in light of our, you know, our understanding of election and this, this verse here in 1 Timothy 3, 4, I don't think we can take this to mean that the, his children must be saved. We hope that, we pray for that, we long for that, but it's not a requirement. Rather, the idea here is that they are to be submissive and, um, and to be obedient to their father while under his, his household, under his roof. Now, what does it mean? Uh, it says here in verse 4 that they are to be submissive with all reverence. What does all reverence mean? Well, the word order in, in the Greek argues that this, this, uh, this idea of all reverence refers to the children. So they are to show reverence towards, uh, be reverent in manner towards their father in their submission. And that, that's possibly what Paul means here. However, um, the word reverence or dignity is used later to describe deacons in chapter 3, verse 8, uh, and also their wives in verse 11, older men in Titus 2, 2, and even Titus in particular in verse 7 of chapter 2 of Titus. Therefore, um, I think we conclude, can conclude that the word reverence here or dignity refers to the attitude of the father, not actually the children. And uh, if you were to read the ESV, uh, that translation, that it's kind of more clear that way, that it's, you know, it's more of, a, if I can paraphrase it, that um, he is to rule his own house well with all reverence having his children in submission. And so what, what does that mean then? Um, it means that overseers or pastors are to manage their children with a with a seriousness, a a, a a a dignity, a reverence, and taking seriously the role that they have of of leading and guiding and causing their children to be submissive. In other words, as the leader of of the home life and the one responsible ultimately, well, responsible for how his children behave. Ultimately, the child is responsible for their behavior. But as the father, you are, in a sense, responsible for how things go in your home and how they behave. He is to take seriously his role of leading, guiding, and disciplining his children. He is to have, you know, he'd be grounded in the word of God, using those principles to guide and to lead his home, taking seriously this role, not, you know, taking it lightly. Oh, well, you know, kids will keep kids, you know. And, uh, but rather to be serious to, with all reverence and concern, he is to, to keep his children in submission. It's not an easy task, but it is a, a necessary one because, Paul says, and here it is in verse 5, if a man does not know how to rule his own house, 
And when I, let me just stop and say when Paul says no, I think what he's going beyond is just not a knowledge but a, a practice. So if he doesn't know how to, to, to rule and to, to his own house well, practice this, how will he take care of the church of God? Paul here then makes explicit in verse 5 that there is a direct connection between the pastor's ability to manage his family and his ability to manage the church of God. Um, this idea of uh, the metaphor of home is commonly associated with the church, and uh, there's many verses that call the church the household of God, and so we can see here this connection between you know, the, the, the father leading well, managing well in the home, his own household, demonstrates then whether or not he is able to care for the church of God or the household of God, those in the very uh, church of God, the individual people. If he cannot manage his home and keep his children under control, how will he be effective in managing those in God's household? That's Paul's argument here. He must first evidence an ability to care for his family before allowed to care for the family of God. And I want to take just a quick notice of of this language here. He says, how will he take care of the church of God? And this idea of caring, uh, I think, informs our understanding of what it means to rule over his house. He is to not just, you know, he's not just the lawgiver, you know, you know, throwing down, you know, the rules and the gavel, but rather he is to care for them through his leadership and through his guidance, doing it in a loving manner, in a, in a manner seeking their good, seeking their benefits spiritually, physically, in order that he show himself capable to do the same in the household of God. And so this isn't just about rule giving, but caring for the people, caring for them in their lives and their needs their spiritual needs, knowing and understanding them. I think there's a general kind of principle that when a child understands that he's truly cared for, he will intrinsically be more submissive <laughs> because he knows that you know, his father or you know, his mother or whoever you know, is, is, is caring for him, actually knows his needs. Um, and uh, whether he knows what his actual needs are or not, but he, he, he understands that, you know, he, he cares, and therefore he's more willing or she's more willing to be submissive because of the genuineness of the leadership. Um, Paul then, as I said, is, I think, using a argument from lesser to greater and what I mean by this is maybe not the typical argument of lesser to greater. I don't think what Paul is saying is that his responsibility over the church is greater in value than his responsibility of leading the home. Meaning, it's not like um, the church is of greater value than his family, like he should show all of his attention to the church at the neglect of his family. In fact, that would be kind of the reversal of what the argument Paul is trying to make here. Rather, he's saying... Uh, that you are, if you can't show that you can manage your own home well, which is of utmost value and importance, as that is your first ministry, 
is to be a, you know, a godly leader of the home, then how can you manage the household of God, which, which is far greater in number of people, much more, many, you know, many more people to manage, to care for, uh, in one sense, much greater uh, decision-making, um, more opportunities to, to, to mess up, to fail, you know, and uh, in front of the church or in front of those outside of the church. And so this isn't really an argument from lesser of greater of, of value, like the church is more valuable than his own family, but that there is a greater responsibility because of the amount of people, the number of people, uh, the, the, concept, you know, the, the, the fallout of, you know, mistakes and, and those similar kinds of ideas that he could make in the church if he's not managing his own home well. The next uh, uh, qualification that Paul gives here is that he is not to be a novice or a new convert. That's what Paul means by that. He's not to be a new believer. Why does Paul prohibit new believers from becoming pastors? Well, most simply, probably, because new believers lack the spiritual maturity necessary to lead and care for the, the household of God. Paul is not trying to be insulting, like, you know, new believers, you know, well, you're, you know, you're second tier. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not being insulting by saying this. He is pointing out the obvious reality that new believers need to mature before they hold leadership positions in the church. Otherwise, Paul warns, he may fall into the same trap of pride as did the devil. Look what he says at the end of verse 6. You know, he's not to be a novice or a new believer, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of as the devil. And the idea here is that he falls into the same kind of, uh, the same kind of judgment or trap that the devil did fall into, which was what? <laughs> pride, right? And so Paul warns against this. Uh, and, and the dangers of a new believer taking up quickly a position of leadership uh, rather than waiting, being taught, maturing in his faith, uh, and becoming more knowledgeable and more and more understanding of God's word. That doesn't mean that pastors can only, you know, it's only for those 40 and up or whatever, pick an age. There, could be, there can be young pastors, but they ought not to be new believers. They need to show themselves mature in the faith and mature in understanding of God's word, able to lead, their, uh, you know, lead and care for the house of God. Pastors are not to be, uh, uh, along with this, pastors are not to be conceited like that of the false teachers who were conceited. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4. Let me read that to you. Uh, it says, if anyone teaches, verse 3, otherwise, and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, so a false teacher kind of a, a person, then what does verse, say, verse 4 say? He is proud, knowing nothing. The pastor is not to be conceited like, that, like the false teachers were. He is rather to be humble. And this may require then him then to wait until he's more spiritually mature, more, uh, not, more, not a novice, but 
having grown in his faith and his submission to the, to the Lord and to his word. A new convert does not belong in a position of authority because of the temptations of, of pride. You know, look, look how easily, look how quickly I made it, you know, to, you know, to the leadership of the church. You know, I must be something. Otherwise, you know, they wouldn't have done that, you know, so quickly. And so it, it creates obvious temptations, and the consequences are great if he falls into that arrogance and pride. Finally, Paul instructs in verse, uh, in verse 7, chapter 3, this. He says, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. It is necessary for a pastor to have a good reputation among those not just inside of the church, as important as that is, but also those outside of the church. If he doesn't, if he lacks that good reputation, that positive kind of reputation among uh, strangers, among those outside of the church, unbelievers, it, it, it allows and it encourages uh, a kind of reproach and disgrace, not only upon themselves as individuals in the community, but also upon the church which they are leading as well. Uh, uh, Mounts, a, a, a wonderful scholar and uh, exegete, says, kind of paraphrases First Peter chapter five eight, saying that Satan is a roaring lion, lion looking for church leaders to devour. Satan obviously is seeking to devour all Christians to lead them astray, but why not start at the top? Why not start there and work down? If I, can, if I can destroy and devour the church leadership, then I can get to the rest of the flock. If the shepherd's out, the flock is vulnerable. And so Paul instructs that the pastor have a good reputation outside of the church. Now, what Paul doesn't mean by this is that he'll be accepted by those outside of the church, you know, as if, you know, they'll accept all that he teaches as true and correct and, you know, and submit to it, but rather that his character is irreproachable. And Paul is kind of going back then to where he started about being blameless. He is to have an irreproachable kind of character amongst those outside of the church so that they can't accuse him of doing evil, only really of, of doing good. And, and Paul, uh, or excuse me, Peter touches on this idea, and I'm I'll leave at this verse, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. If I can get there, verse, uh, verse 13. Paul says this generally of all Christians, but of course then it applies to pastors as well. He says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake or suffer righteously, he says, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, having a clear conscience, a pure conscience, so that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. 
And then verse 17, for it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, I know there's a lot to this passage about even just having uh, the ability to share the gospel and have an answer, but my focus really isn't on that as we end here, but really what he says about suffering for righteousness' sake rather than suffering for evil. And the fact is, is that you know, the outsiders will look in and look at the pastor and, you know, accuse him of all kinds of things, you know, legalistic, you know, unrealistic, whatever the case may be. The idea here isn't that he isn't accused or isn't insulted or isn't, uh, isn't uh, suffering, but that if he does suffer, he has to be suffering for righteousness', righteousness sake, not for doing evil. So, in relationship then to where Paul ends here in verse 7, he is to have this good kind of reputation so that if he suffers by those outside of the church, it's for the right reason, not because he had a bad reputation, an ungodly reputation, but a, a good one in the eyes of God, before God and before the people of God. Let's close in a word of prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, Lord, we've, um, we've looked at now 16 different qualifications for a pastor, for an elder, leader of the church. Lord, the task is, is large. The, the kind of character required of such a man is, is heavy. It's weighty. It's, it's, a big, uh, it's a big responsibility. Lord, help us. We pray, all of us, both in church leadership and Lord, the members of the church, may we submit ourselves to Paul's instruction here. Lord, we, as we said last time, the expectation isn't that the pastor is some kind of superhuman when it comes to you know, exceeding the believers in all spiritual maturity, but, Lord, that he sets an example that others can follow after. And, uh, Lord, may, may all of our believers here, all the members of this church, be an example to one another so that uh, the younger ones, the, the less mature, Lord, those who are growing in the faith may look up to the example of, of the rest and, demon- and see noticeably the blameless testimony that they hold before you. Lord, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.